I'm Titi. And I'm Zakia. And from Spotify, this is Dope Labs. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Dope Labs, a weekly podcast that mixes hardcore science, pop culture, and a healthy dose of friendship. This week is part two of our series on maternal health. If you haven't listened to last week's lab yet with Simone Tate, we really recommend listening to that one first. We talked to Simone about what services maternal health care encompasses. We learned that there's a lot of bottlenecks when it comes to getting good maternal health care here in the United States. And we also dug into disparities in maternal health among specific groups. This week, we're zooming out to understand more of the context around the state of maternal health care today, how we got here, and how to make it better. Okay, let's get into the recitation. What do we know? Well, you know, like you mentioned, we learned a lot from last week's lab. And sadly, we learned if you want good care, you basically need to move to Finland. (laughs) (laughs) But if you aren't trying to move to Finland, here are some of the major points from last week's episode about the state of maternal health care. Maternal health care in the United States is out of date and out of touch with the needs of today's birthing population. Yes, we're seeing rising rates of both morbidity, so those are health issues, and mortality that's death, as it's related to complications following pregnancy and giving birth. Some of the major bottlenecks in maternal health care include the hurdles that you have to jump over, making monthly appointments, the lack of options of both in-person and virtual care, and maternal health care deserts. Also, mortality rates are disproportionate among women of color, so they are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy or birth complications. We also found out that 50% of the birthing population in the United States are on Medicaid, which means that they don't have equal and equitable access to health care. And at the end of the last episode, we started talking about the Momnibus legislation, which focuses on bringing preventable mortality rates closer to zero. And that takes us to kind of what we want to know for this lab. Yeah, So my first question is, why is maternal health care in the U.S. so bad? With the amount of money that Simone was telling us gets poured into our maternal health care system, you would think that that would mean that we are doing really great. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case. And I want to know why. And I want to know more about these programs, you know. So Mm. how does insurance and the support that the federal government provides for Mm -hmm. birthing parents, Mm -hmm. how does that come into play? And why isn't it doing its job, it seems like? That is such a good question. And I also want to know what makes maternal health care, quote unquote, good. 
And once we know what makes it good, how do we make it even better? Mm, yes. And I think when we consider that, who is the we, right? Right. Should it be nonprofits and mm -hmm. private agencies? Or are there policies and programs that our government should sponsor that might improve outcomes? That's what I want to know. Okay. I think we've got enough questions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's jump into the dissection. Our guest for today's lab is Dr. Sarah Benatar. My name is Sarah Benatar. I'm a principal research associate at the Urban Institute in the Health Policy Center. So I do research mostly focused on maternal and child health. The first thing we wanted to know from Dr. Benatar is why maternal health care in the United States is so poor. She said it's not about money. The U.S. spends more money on maternal health than any other country in the entire world. 25% more per capita than the next highest spender. Despite all of that, we have some of the worst outcomes for pregnant people and infants. And let's talk about those outcomes. We learned from Simone last week about increasing mortality rates, but what are the specifics? In 2018, the rate was 17 per 100,000 births resulted in a maternal death. That went up in 2019 to over 20 deaths per 100,000 pregnant people. In 2020, that was even higher at 23.8. The next highest rate for a high-income country is half that. So in Canada and France, the rates are more around 8 per 100,000 deaths. And Sarah told us historically, this upward trajectory hasn't been the trend. The Commonwealth Fund has this terrific piece that's worth looking at where they have a chart of maternal mortality starting in about 1918. And you can see that it starts really, really high. And then by the 1930s or so, it's considerably lower. And it just keeps on going down until about the 1980s. And in the 1980s, it goes up again. And now they just are creeping up consistently. So this chart is looking at death per 100,000 pregnant people. Mm. In the 80s and 90s, you're only seeing about seven to eight deaths. But it's really sobering to learn that today we're up to about 23 deaths per mm. 100,000 pregnant people. That's a problem. Huge. 23 sounds like it's small. But when you look at like what it was... That's significant. Yeah. We talk three about times, times the amount. three. Yeah. <laughs> Anything increasing by times three, you need to check on it. Yes. A good segment of that can be attributed to discriminatory healthcare practices and systemic racism, I think, because there is just an incredible amount of stress. And I think it's relatively well demonstrated that it's not helpful for a pregnancy. In addition to mortality rates, there are other stats that Dr. Benatar points to that indicate the U.S. is not up to par when it comes to maternal health care. In the U.S., some of the things that we really pay close attention to are low birth weight. So that's a baby that's born weighing less than five pounds, eight ounces and preterm birth, which is being delivered before 37 weeks gestation. So those are some of the bigger indicators. Another thing are the C-section rates. Approximately a third of all deliveries are done by C-section now. The WHO said that the ideal rate would be around 15%. 
Cesarean deliveries, which are also known as C-sections, do have more risk than delivering a baby vaginally, but they're often medically necessary in order to protect the health of a birthing parent or a baby. There are some common chronic health conditions that sometimes require C-section delivery, and those include heart disease, high blood pressure, or gestational diabetes. And the disparities we've been talking about permeate all of these different areas. If you look at this by race and ethnicity, the rates, particularly for Black women and birthing people, are much higher. So maternal mortality rates can be three to four times higher. C-section rates are quite a bit higher. Low birth weight and preterm birth rates are also higher for Black women and birthing people. The math ain't mathing, okay? (laughs) The U.S. spends the most money on maternal health care, but has the worst outcomes, especially for Black women and birthing people? We need to understand more. So we asked Dr. Benatar what is going on So many people who become pregnant and are then engaging in prenatal care have not necessarily had access to high-quality care prior to that and have also experienced all kinds of discrimination in care. But, you know, we're talking about people coming into pregnancy maybe haven't had, especially prior to the ACA, any medical insurance or coverage prior because Medicaid pays for over 40% of all births in the United States. And for Black women and birthing people, it's higher. It's more like 65% of births. Medicaid is a federal and state program that helps with healthcare costs for Americans with limited income and resources. And it's the largest source of funding for medical and health-related services for people with low income in the United States. So Medicaid is such an important program to have because it provides healthcare to a portion of the population that wouldn't have it otherwise. But because it is regulated at the state level as well as the federal level, there are some parts of it that, you know, depending on the state that you're in, have some pitfalls. Insurance, I think, is one of the trickiest things in adulting. (laughs) Don't you think? Like For real, for real. It's really wild. Dr. Benatar mentioned the ACA or the Affordable Care Act, which was passed in 2010 under the Obama administration. The ACA was meant to expand health care coverage for millions of uninsured Americans. It also expanded Medicaid eligibility and created the marketplace where people can purchase private insurance. And that private insurance is very expensive, by the way. Very. But before the Affordable Care Act, you had to basically have a job if you wanted good health care. And isn't that kind of wild when we step back from it? <laughs> like It's like, OK, you only have the right to live if you are working, working. And not all jobs provide health care. Exactly. I have health. I have a body whether I'm working or not. Exactly. And that's something that's unique to the United States because universal health care is something that they have in Europe and Canada. And we're just slow to get on it. People are still fighting the Affordable Care Act, also called Obamacare, by folks who want to make it seem like it's something that is partisan, like people getting quality health care as a partisan thing. It's not. Well, in my opinion, it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. But here we are. Here we are. At this big age, this country at this big age <laughs> set up and having a temper tantrum around health care. Get it together or you're not getting anything. Yeah. <laughs> Another answer to the question, how did we get here, is what Dr. Benatar calls a very medicalized approach to pregnancy. One that values profit over people. Many other places approach pregnancy from a perspective that's much more normalized where this is a natural process that maybe sometimes requires a little bit of help. 
but most of the time we can support women through it and have a healthy outcome. The medicalized model also maximizes profits. Many times these visits are very short, maybe 15 minutes. Like if you think about a hospital-based clinic where we're trying to get as many people in, especially Because Medicaid is one of the largest payers, there are often high no-show rates. And that could be because of the factors we talked about last week with Simone. Lack of access to childcare and transportation, no telehealth options, and maternal health care deserts. So there are these short visits in which maybe there's been no pre-existing relationship. And many people will express that they aren't being listened to. And lots of people have all kinds of other social determinants that are affecting their health, like housing insecurity, food insecurity, anxiety, depression. The list is long. Another trend that directly correlates to worsening prenatal care in the United States is the growing OBGYN shortage. And we mentioned that last week, but to help you understand it a little bit better, let's think about it from the entire national perspective, so not just rural areas. Mm -hmm. If you look at all the counties in the United States, half of them do not have a single OBGYN. That's major. That's wild. That is major. My whole county? Yeah. When I think about going to another county for anything... A specific grocery store because of a specific shop that I like? Oh my gosh. So far, so far. (laughs) This is going to be a trek. Now imagine doing that pregnant. Mm Mm-hmm. Ugh. In part one of this series, Simone said that 50% of the birthing population is on Medicaid. And now we know that Medicaid is one of the largest payers of maternal health care in the United States, covering about 40% of all births in the United States and 65% of births for Black women and birthing people. So let's break down Medicaid more in the context of maternal health. In the 1980s, Medicaid expanded to include pregnant people. So prior to that, Medicaid was almost exclusively a program for children and for adults with very, very low incomes. So it was really pretty restrictive. To be eligible to receive Medicaid, most people have to meet an income requirement. Each state decides how high the income threshold goes for pregnancy-related Medicaid coverage. So in one state, you could make a certain amount of money and qualify for pregnancy-related Medicaid. But in another state, you could make 30% more and still qualify for pregnancy-related Medicaid. Let's break that down. So when Dr. Benatar mentions qualifying, what she's talking about is the income level, how much income you make as it relates to the federal poverty level. And so the federal poverty level is $13,500 annually for individuals and around eighteen dollars for families of two. And the gotcha gotcha with all of this is exactly what Dr. Benatar said. It changes between states. So we looked up what it would be for Maryland. So let's say it's you and your partner and one of you is pregnant. You qualify for Medicaid if you make up to $4,029 per month. Okay, so that's for Maryland. For Alabama, same situation. You, your partner, one of you is pregnant. You qualify if you make up to $2,228 per month. Uh, That's a lot lower. That is a lot lower. I would want to move to Maryland if I could. Right. You think about the quality of life of the pregnant folks in Alabama who are looking to qualify for Medicaid. That annual income, when you do the math, 
that's not a lot of money. I mean, I think that's the interesting thing that this is state by state, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and this is a much higher percentage of the federal poverty level Mm -hmm. that's allowed. And so this is gracious for maternal health care. We won't even get into what it looks like, how little income you can make if you want to qualify for Medicaid and you're not pregnant. Right. You know, and this is where I think we see these insurance gaps. And when people are pregnant, they show up and they haven't had good health care leading up to this. Absolutely. And I think this is how we get that vicious cycle of complications and increased morbidity and mortality. Absolutely. Because all of these things touch. Every aspect of your life is touching this. So if you have to make below a certain amount, that means that's going to affect, do you have a car? Do you have access mm-hmm. to technology? The quality right. of your food? And all of these will affect your pregnancy. All of it. Where you can live, Mm -hmm. air quality because of where you're living. Yes, yes. I was going to say, this is just tying back to so many episodes, including what Dr. Tate said about if you're living with somebody else, if they make a little bit more income, it may Mm -hmm. not even be yours to spend, but what does that mean for your household amount, right? And and if you qualify or not. And then what does that mean for your support throughout your pregnancy? Absolutely. It's just, oh my goodness, there are so many, so many ways to look at this. Yeah, because I mean, even when we think back to our sleep episodes with Dr. Jean-Louis, Mm -hmm. And talking about the quality of your health is dependent on your zip code. Yep. Now compound that with access to proper health care. Access to maternal health care. Exactly. is also dependent on your zip code. Is dependent on your zip code. You're just stacking those things up. Mm. In many states now, the threshold for eligibility is pretty high. You could be to 200-ish percent of poverty and qualify for pregnancy-related Medicaid coverage. And then Medicaid covers all of your pregnancy-related health care needs. It also covers any other health care-related needs you have. Since 1989, pregnant women with incomes at or below 133% of the federal poverty level have been a mandatory Medicaid eligibility group. So that means you can make up to 100% of the poverty level plus an additional 33%. They're giving you a little bonus area there, Mm -hmm. you know. So if you made up to 133% of the poverty level, then you're mandatory, like it's mandatory that you are included in Medicaid coverage. Every pregnant individual in the United States who becomes pregnant should qualify for either Medicaid or the Children's Health Insurance Program. The Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, was part of the Balanced Budget Act of 1997. And so this program was created to provide low-cost health coverage for children who wouldn't qualify for Medicaid, but are still relatively low income. Like Medicaid, each state is still determining the eligibility requirements for CHIP. So really, it's plugging a gap. If the Children's Health Insurance Program covers some pregnancies that undocumented people are experiencing because it is focused on the unborn child in that situation because they would not otherwise qualify for a federally funded health insurance program. It's like we have some stop gaps, but it's not 100%. So in the case of CHIP, you know, if you imagine an undocumented person that's pregnant. They're not eligible for Medicaid, but their unborn child is eligible for CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program. Right. But the birthing parent still isn't covered by either of those two things. Right. So we have some stop gaps, but it's still leaky. It's still leaky. <laughs> yeah. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about postpartum care and some legislation that's coming out to hopefully improve maternal health in the United States. Plus, stick around to hear about a special episode that we're working on.
This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. But before we get back to the lab, two things. Next week, we're talking all about art therapy and how art can be utilized to help us in our mental health journeys. And we're also reaching out to ask for your input and feedback. We are doing a special episode calling out the LGBTQIA community in STEM. If you are a member of this community, we want to hear from you. Call us at 202-567-7028 and tell us about your work, what you do. We want to hear it all. Let's get back to the lab. We've been talking with Dr. Benatar about Medicaid, CHIP, which is the Children's Health Insurance Program. And these are two programs meant to expand maternal health care coverage in the United States and how complicated it can be to qualify for these programs. So let's say you do qualify. You've jumped through all the hoops to get there. Medicaid coverage includes, you know, pregnancies with complications and postpartum health care, too. So remember how Simone said that typically there is a six-week post-birth follow-up and then that's it. If you have Medicaid, the minimum requirement is that pregnant people remain covered for up to 60 days postpartum. Now, I'm going to let you do the math for six weeks times seven days. That's not giving you a lot of room if you miss that right hitting on the nose at six weeks. You know what I'm saying, TT? Yeah. And so in many states, there are now postpartum extensions of Medicaid that will let you stay covered up to a year after giving birth. And we want to pause and really take a moment to talk about postpartum care. Sometimes we refer to the, the first three months postpartum as the fourth trimester. And I think that more attention paid to that fourth trimester would be really valuable. When it comes to maternal health, so much focus is on the time leading up to birth and then the birth itself. And then there's just a huge drop off in care. But having good medical care and a strong support system is just as crucial if not more so after birth, when the baby is here? Yes. There are a few things to think about. One is the safety of the mother or the birthing parent, because there are a number of sequelae that could happen that could really endanger the life of the person who just delivered a baby. And that is generally around hemorrhage. And by sequela, she just means a condition resulting from a previous condition. So think of it as like another domino in a sequence of conditions or effects. Postpartum hemorrhage is a rare but very serious condition when a person has heavy bleeding after giving birth. It's usually treatable as long as you have access to good medical care. And if you don't and it's not treated, it can be fatal. 
Then there's support around breastfeeding, if that is a choice that has been made. And even if it's not, then there's like making sure that there's enough formula available. It's the wrong formula. If it doesn't taste good, if your child has allergies, it can be a real struggle. And not being able to provide adequate food for your child is just heartbreaking. And diapers, the same thing. If you make the decision to breastfeed, there are all kinds of things to deal with, like getting a newborn to latch, sore, chapped nipples, really painful infection of milk ducts called mastitis, just to name a few. And with formula, next time you go to the pharmacy, go look at those formula prices and diapers. Ooh. All of it is so expensive. They even have infant formula behind those little clear cases so that you have to call a salesperson mm -hmm. over to unlock it for you. And so there are some programs like Women, Infants, Children, or WIC that will cover the cost of formula for low-income families. Postpartum depression is also a huge health risk during the fourth trimester. Remember Simone said that according to the CDC, about one in eight women experience symptoms of postpartum depression. Of course, all the other things that a new parent might need, like housing, <laughs> and there could be intimate partner violence. So there are programs out there that are designed to help support new parents, and sometimes doula care will extend to the postpartum period as well. All of this on top of very little sleep mm. and pressure of keeping this little animal alive. Mm -hmm. It's no wonder that postpartum care is advised for up to a year after giving birth. That single six-week appointment just doesn't cut it. And you know, all of this information is really powerful. And it's important to remember that even though we're seeing this really concerning trend of increasing mortality rates among pregnant people, we're also now talking about it in a way that we haven't seen before. There's a lot more attention to this topic now than there has been for many, many decades. So what are some elements of maternal health care that might help improve these statistics? Dr. Benatar and her colleagues at the Urban Institute did a project that looked at some different interventions or enhancements to existing maternal care, and there were some positive results. Ultimately, what we found is that models of care in which there is more time to spend with patients and where there's a relationship that is built, tended to be associated with better outcomes. From an impacts standpoint, we found that birth center care was positively associated with improved birth weight and gestational ages and reduced C-sections. If you feel like your provider understands you, listens to you, and cares about you, <laughs> the quality of the care will be improved. And as a result, so will the outcomes. This reminds me of the hybrid remote in-person model Simone was talking about. Spending more time talking to healthcare providers can be really beneficial in some cases. Mm -hmm. And for some people, you don't have to be in person to do it. It can be online or telephone appointments. Those are all options for talking through things like what to expect from labor, measures to maintain your health during pregnancy, and just fielding up any questions that are arising throughout your pregnancy. And it doesn't even have to be with a doctor or a midwife. Dr. Benatar mentioned doulas and care coordinators as other potential support systems. Doula care is like an ingredient that you can add to prenatal and delivery care. It's a lay person who comes and can be your advocate during the birthing process. And this is such a great option for additional coaching mm -hmm. through all these different stages of pregnancy, labor, and beyond. Another type of support role that Dr. Benatar mentioned is being part of group prenatal care. 
You have a short interaction with your obstetric provider who could be a midwife or a nurse practitioner or an OBGYN, but you're also part of a group of people who are approximately at the same stage of pregnancy as you are. You always meet together. It's a two-hour block of time. You learn, you talk about what your concerns are. You have social support in addition to the education and then the medical support. A major part of improving outcomes is collecting data, understanding where we are now. Mm-hmm. We asked Dr. Benatar about how we collect data around births. We have birth certificate data, and that's pretty well collected, although there are some things on the birth certificate that are really highly reliable and some things that aren't. We have data from Medicaid claims, but there's like no race ethnicity data on Medicaid claims. So that makes it really hard to disaggregate and see how the disparities are entrenched. I think we need to get more data on how people actually feel about the care that they're getting. And with all of this new data that we might be able to get our hands on, that will inform the laws and policies that are put in place. I can't remember a time when maternal health had so much attention in Congress. Recently, we've seen some stories about the racial inequities for Black women in maternal health care. And those stories have prompted many of these conversations that are now happening in Congress and on a larger stage, and they've mobilized a lot of these new policy proposals. When things happen to rich people, they listen. (laughs) (laughs) Also known as, yes. (laughs) We're not just talking about people who haven't had access to care. We're talking about people who exist in more privileged spaces. I mean, Serena Williams, right? (laughs) Like, has access to the highest quality care and still almost died. This is such a good point. So if you don't know, Serena Williams, the Serena Williams, delivered her baby by emergency C-section in September of 2017. The C-section went smoothly, but then she felt short of breath and immediately worried because she has a history of blood clots. She advocated for herself and asked for a CT scan and blood thinners. And the nurse just thought that she was kind of just like confused because of the pain medication that she was on from the C-section. Serena Williams then went on to develop blood clots in her lungs and her C-section incision ruptured because of the coughing from the clots that she had in her lungs. When the doctors went to close the C-section wound again, they discovered a hematoma in her abdomen. She also had another procedure to insert a filter in a vein to prevent further clots in her lungs. Serena stayed in the hospital for another week and was confined to her bed at home for another six weeks. And this is a (laughs) world-class athlete, Mm -hmm. right? Who knows her body with constant monitoring. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? I can't. You're going to tell somebody who her body is her job. That is her livelihood. And you're going to tell me you think you know better than she does when she's in pain? It just doesn't make sense. Recently, Congress unanimously passed a bill that authorized $60 million dollars over the next five years to prevent maternal mortality in the United States. That money is going to go to funding maternal health review committees in all 50 states. And that helps them to collect that data that we were talking about earlier on what is killing women during or after childbirth. Dr. Benatar also mentioned another law that was introduced last month during Black Maternal Health Week by Senator Cory Booker and others called the Mama's First Act. And that is also designed to address the maternal mortality crisis. Maternal mortality is tragic and 
preventable in almost all cases. But maternal morbidity happens to way, way, way more pregnant people. And that's like gestational diabetes, hypertension, preeclampsia, postpartum hemorrhage, you know, things that don't kill pregnant and birthing people, but are still very serious and can have long-term sequelae. So I think Senator Booker's legislation wants to expand Medicaid to include doula midwifery and tribal midwifery care. It's clear that a combination of all these things, better care, more data, and more legislation, is going to be required to make the transformative change that we need in the United States. Medicaid is an incredible lever. Because Medicaid pays for so many pregnancies, I think the opportunity to affect change through Medicaid is pretty remarkable. And there's, you know, talk about changing payment structure. You may have heard this term called value-based payment, where basically health plans are paid more for good outcomes. This is a conversation that is definitely being had. And I think a lot of people are asking hard questions, and that's really important. I'm pretty hopeful. What concerns me is that what probably needs to happen is something that's really pretty transformative. The U.S. healthcare system does not transform quickly. It is this behemoth of a system. Mm -hmm. It kind of feels like when people talk about racism, right, and how we're going to change that in the Mm -hmm. United States. Mm -hmm. It's huge. And because the progress is so slow and incremental, and Mm -hmm. sometimes incremental in the wrong directions, you Mm -hmm. have to think of these trends formative ideas and principles so you can make any movement, right? You have to shoot for the next galaxy Mm. to move to the moon. All right, it's time for one thing. TT, I want to hear from you. What's your one thing this week? It is re-dyeing some of my old clothes. Oh, yes. You've been doing that again? I'm too excited. (laughs) (laughs) In the show, we talk a lot about reduce, reuse, recycle, and it's a really great way for me to give clothes new life. So I've been using Rit Dye and is it Dylan? D-Y-L-O-N? Dylan? Dylan. (laughs) Dylan. But you can search it pretty much anywhere and it's super, super easy. You just put your clothes in really hot water. You put some of the dye in there and it dyes your clothes or you wash it and you got a brand new shirt. I've dyed about five or six items. You could do jeans. I've seen people do sneakers, anything. It's so much fun. And when you're thinking about donating some clothes or cutting up a shirt because, you know, it's old now, you might be able to give it some new life. An old T-shirt, you dye it black, you dye it orange, you dye it green, you dye it purple. Ooh, now's a look. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's your one thing, Z? My one thing this week is a book. So a couple of weeks ago, I asked people, what are you reading? And if you go to my Instagram, you'll still see there's a highlight that says book club. Mm-hmm. And one of these books was from a friend of the show. Now, I say a friend of the show. I don't know if she's listening, but we talk about her a lot because in the past, we read things that she wrote about movies and mm. TV shows that we liked. And so I'm reading a book by Brooke Ovi, who went mm-hmm. to Hampton with me. Yeah, absolutely. And she wrote this book called Book of Addis cradled embers now it's a novel it's so good and it really is a testament that talent exists because we went to the same school Mm -hmm. i'm not able to write like that all right (laughs) 
It's so good. Hampton putting out the best finds. I'm highlighting passages. Oh, it's so, so good. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking for a book to read, I think it is a great read. It is about love, loss, and liberation, Mm. but a lot of love, and I'm really enjoying it. I can't wait. I'm going to add that to my Kindle right now. Yes. If you have Kindle Unlimited, yes, you can get it for free. Perfect. Brooke, we love you. That's it for Lab 63. This has been a two-parter, so we always love being able to tackle these ideas and really pull them apart with a little bit more time. What'd you think? You like two-parters? You like single episodes? Let us know. Call us at 202-567-7028 and tell us what you thought. You can also call and give us an idea for a different lab you think we should do this semester. We like to hear from you. That's 202-567-7028. You can also text. And don't forget that there is so much more to dig into on our website. There'll be a cheat sheet for today's lab, additional links and resources in the show notes. Plus, you can sign up for our newsletter. Check it out at dopelabspodcast.com. Special thanks to today's guest expert, Dr. Sarah Benatar. You can find and follow her on Twitter at Sarah C. Benatar. That's S-A-R-A-H-C-B-E-N-A-T-A-R. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Podcast. TT's on Twitter and Instagram at dr underscore tsho. And you can find Zakia at Z said so. Dope Labs is a Spotify original production from Mega Own Media Group. Our producers are Jenny Radelet Mast and Lydia Smith of Wave Runner Studios. Our associate producer from Mega Own Media is Brianna Garrett. Editing and sound design by Rob Smirciak. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Original music composed and produced by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiura. From Spotify, executive producer Corinne Gilliard and creative producer Miguel Contreras. Special thanks to Shirley Ramos, Jess Borison, Yasmin Afifi, Kamu Elolia, Till Kratke, and Brian Marquis. Executive producers from Mega O Media Group are us, Titi Shodia and Zakia Watley. <laughs>